Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 4, Speaking of the Sun, Third Century Attempts at Trinitarian Theology. Now that we've talked about the context of the Roman Empire and the polity and figures of the 3rd century church, it's finally time to start talking about the central question that will dominate the Nicene Controversy. Just what is this Trinity thing all about? To summarize the problem of the Trinity very briefly, the New Testament talks about three different persons who are usually referred to as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In many places, the biblical texts seem to imply that these three persons are all divine, and that they are all God. So, for example, John chapter 1 talks about how the Word, that's another biblical name for the Son, was in the beginning with God, and how the Word also was God. But the picture gets more complicated than that, for in the Gospel of John, the Son becomes incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus regularly describes God as the Father, and offers the Father worship just like other human beings. In fact, after his resurrection, he tells his disciples that he is ascending to, quote, my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You'll find that in John chapter 20, verse 17. And that sure sounds like he is not the Father's equal. Maybe he's not even divine himself. Further complicating this puzzle, the earliest Christians retained the Jewish belief that there was only one God. And the oneness of God was not some casual aside within Jewish doctrine. It was a foundational tenet of all Jewish religious thought, and of all Christian thought after that. So, if there's only one God, then what are these three divine persons doing in our monotheism? And if these three persons were all divine, didn't that mean that there were three gods, not one? The attempts of early Christians to solve these dilemmas are what we today call Trinitarian theology. Today, we're going to talk about three different third century sources that all contributed in their various ways to the theologies of the fourth century. Each of the subjects in our story will make their own use of these various sources, weaving their own unique tapestry of relations between these three mysterious persons. Now, in theology, as in politics, often the most important influence is the one you are most keen to avoid being like. And at the dawn of the 4th century, there was one kind of Trinitarian theology that made almost everyone cringe with disgust. This kind of theology went by several names, Sibelianism, Monarchianism, or in modern times, Oneness Christology. But we are going to use the term modalism to describe it. We're going to describe it that way for two reasons. The first is that it is the most comprehensive, naming a particular pattern of thinking rather than a catchphrase or a particular teacher. And second, because of all those possible terms, I find modalism to be the one that is the most fun to say. 
So what does modalistic theology say? Well, in a nutshell, modalism states that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all three different modes or manifestations of the one God. God, properly speaking, is therefore one thing and not three. God simply chooses to manifest as these three different persons at different points in time. You have probably heard modalistic analogies for God without realizing it. Has anyone ever tried to explain the Trinity to you by saying how it's like water being a solid, a liquid, or a gas? That's a modalistic analogy. You have the same set of atoms, the same one thing, that just takes a different configuration depending on the temperature. Or perhaps someone has explained the Trinity to you by saying it's like how the same person can be a father and a son and a cousin all at the same time. This is also modalism. The terms father, son, and cousin all just describe different aspects of a relationship of a being who is one and not really three in any particularly interesting way. As the prevalence of these analogies makes clear, modalism is still alive and well today. There are many parishioners in Trinitarian churches who think of God in modalistic terms without realizing it. There are even whole denominations today that espouse a modalistic view of God. If you are familiar with oneness Pentecostal traditions, then you already know one prominent modalistic church, because that's the view they endorse. So, modalism has a certain kind of perennial appeal, and yet it was radioactive in the ancient world. Simply being labeled as a modalist could be enough to call down all kinds of ecclesiastical censure on a theologian. Now, why was this? Well, it had to do with the fact that modalism was equivalent to another theological position called patrapashanism. Patrapashanism is a $10 word to describe the belief that the Father had suffered and been crucified on the cross. You can remember this by looking at the word's etymology. It comes from potter, meaning father, and pasio, meaning to suffer, as in the passion of the Christ. It's from the same root. Now, since modalism holds that father and son are two names for the same thing, to say that Jesus Christ suffered and died was equivalent to saying the father suffered and died. It's no different than saying that if the husband of Sarah suffered, then the father of Isaac suffered. In either case, we're talking about Abraham. Now, we don't have time to get into the philosophical details here. That will be for a later episode. But for now, you just need to know that saying that the father had suffered or died was really, really, really bad in antiquity. Almost all ancient authorities took it as axiomatic, that the source of all being was by definition beyond pain or suffering or change. Since in Christian theology the source of all being is the Father, that meant that the Father had to be beyond suffering and pain. Since the Son comes from the Father in some way and is therefore not the source of all being, the notion that he could suffer was not so controversial. Being called a modalist in the ancient world was kind of like denying that matter is composed of atoms today. You'll find a few people who are very insistent about it, but they are viewed as frauds and quacks by most mainstream thinkers, just so with the modalists of the 3rd and 4th centuries. So the upshot of all this is that virtually all the thinkers we'll be looking at in the 4th century are going to avoid saying the father and son are identical to each other. 
Accusations of modalism will still be thrown around a good bit, most prominently by Arius against his bishop Alexander, and the pressure to find some way of speaking about the Trinity that doesn't impute suffering to the Father will be extremely high. Now that we know what our 4th century thinkers were trying not to repeat, let's look at some of the 3rd century theologies that they did want to repeat, or at least to creatively appropriate. Last episode, I spent an inordinate amount of time telling you what a genius Origen was. Now it's my job to tell you some of what he thought and how it set the stage for what was to come at Nicaea. The first thing you need to know is that Origen had a very particular understanding of how to interpret the Bible that most of his contemporaries and descendants shared. Origen was a very attentive reader of the Bible, and he noticed something that many people have noticed since. The Bible contains what appear to be glaring contradictions. For example, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe Jesus entering the temple at the end of his ministry, becoming enraged at the money changers and merchants doing business in the house of God, flipping over a bunch of tables and kicking them all out. But the Gospel of John describes Jesus doing this at the beginning of his ministry, not the end. And in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 29 prophesies that Egypt will go through a period of time, 40 years in fact, when it is completely uninhabited. Of course, no such thing has ever happened as Origen, himself a resident of Egypt, knew full well. So what is going on here? Well, to understand this, you need to know that in late antiquity, they thought about biblical inspiration differently than we do. Nowadays, when someone says the Bible is inspired, they often mean that they think God authored the Bible every single word and that every single word is literally, factually true. But in the ancient world, to say that a God had inspired a text meant that the text contained multiple layers of meaning. There were hidden spiritual meanings that lay behind the literal meaning of a text. These spiritual meanings were the most important ones, the literal meaning of the text was there to be a good, entertaining, and possibly edifying story for the masses. This, by the way, is why Homer's Odyssey and Iliad were often seen as inspired texts in ancient times. They kept the common folk entertained while allowing the wise to move beyond what sometimes seemed like crass literal readings about, for example, God's misdemeanors. Those that wanted to go deeper whether reading the Bible or the Odyssey or Iliad, needed to progress to those spiritual interpretations to get meaning rather than mere entertainment out of the stories. Origen believed that this was the way interpretation worked on all these texts. And so the fact that the literal text of the Bible contradicts itself sometimes is part of the point. God put stumbling blocks in the Bible to alert the careful reader to the fact that something else is going on, something higher than the literal meaning of the story. So, for example, Origen thinks that the four Gospels tell the story of the cleansing of the temple differently because that story is a spiritual allegory for how Jesus cleanses our hearts when he enters them. Origen will go on to say that there are four kinds of souls that Jesus can enter into, and each one gets cleansed a bit differently, hence the four different stories. Similarly, for that tricky prophecy that Ezekiel made, Origen points out that St. Paul distinguishes between a physical and spiritual Israel in Romans chapter 9, 
And so Origen says, well, there must be a spiritual Egypt too, just like there is a spiritual Israel. And Ezekiel's prophecy refers to that spiritual Egypt rather than the literal one. Now, this may seem like a very strange way to interpret the Bible to you. You may even be thinking that it sounds like complete hogwash. If that's where you are, it's worth remembering that the Bible sometimes interprets itself as an allegory. Perhaps you remember the story of Sarah and Hagar from Genesis. God has promised Sarah and her husband Abraham that they will have a child. But Sarah is well past menopause, and after several fruitless attempts, she tells Abraham to just sleep with her slave, Hagar. Abraham does so, and Hagar bears him a son. A bit later, God fulfills the promise, and Abraham and Sarah have a son. Sarah then becomes jealous of Hagar and her firstborn son, and eventually drives them out into the wilderness. Now, you may think that this is a story about any number of things. A historical retelling of events, a cautionary tale about the power of jealousy, a warning about the dangers of losing faith. And to a certain extent, I think Origen would say all those are true. But St. Paul gives it a different spin. In Galatians chapter 4, he says that this story is an allegory. It represents the relationship between the old and new covenants and the freedom that the new covenant brings. Of course, this is probably not something you would get just by attending to that literal meaning of the text. And yet, the inspired text of the Bible itself seems to say that allegory is there. So Origen and the other early Christians didn't think they were inventing a new interpretive technique. They were trying, in their own eyes, to continue the same patterns of interpretation that they saw the Bible itself using. And critically for Origen and his followers, the interpretive key to understanding the allegories of Scripture is Jesus himself. After all, Paul's allegory of Sarah and Hagar is all about the new covenant inaugurated by Christ. And since Christ is the central revelation of the New Testament, Origen understood the whole Bible, both Old and New Testaments, to be pointing to Jesus in some way. This didn't mean that every single passage was always about Jesus in a simplistic kind of way. You may know the old joke that a Sunday school teacher once asked her class, Okay, class, what is small and brown and lives in trees and has a big bushy tail? After a tortured silence, one student finally says, Well, I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but that sounds an awful lot like a squirrel to me. Origen is not trying to force an answer of Jesus on us where squirrels will do. But he does think that Jesus is the sum total of God's revelation to us, and knowing who Jesus is will help us understand the whole Bible better, and vice versa. This is going to be very important for debates going forward, because for centuries after Origen, people are going to be arguing about Jesus using texts that don't seem to be about Jesus. The most famous example of this is Proverbs chapter 8. The chapter is a song by the personified figure of wisdom, who talks about how God created her at the beginning of God's works, how she was beside him like a master worker, creating all things with him and more. Now, at first glance, this may not have much to do with the second person of the Trinity. 
For one thing, Proverbs is in the Old Testament when nobody had ever heard of Jesus, at least by that name. For another, wisdom never claims to be God in Proverbs chapter 8. But in the New Testament, Christ is often referred to as the wisdom of God. And Origen, along with most others, took this as a clue that Proverbs 8 was an allegory for the relationship between the Father and the Son. His approach to interpreting the Bible was incredibly influential, and people on every side of the Nicene Conflict would use his methods to try and make their point. So that's what Origen had to say about the Bible. What did he actually have to say about the Trinity? Well, for starters, Origen was particularly keen on one of the biblical names used for Jesus, the Word. Now in Greek, the term used for word is logos, which can also mean a story, narrative, or the process of rational thinking itself. Jesus is called the Word because he communicates God to us. As Origen says, and I quote, He is called Word because he removes everything irrational from us and makes us truly rational beings who do all things for the glory of God. That's from Origen's commentary on John. In other words, for Origen, Jesus reveals God to us and makes us as much like God as we can be, which is why Jesus himself is divine. The Word is God, just like John 1 says. For only a divine Word could itself communicate the fullness of divinity. Now Origen, like everybody else who doesn't want to be a modalist, is very concerned to emphasize the distinct existence of the Son. Father, Son, and Spirit are not different modes of the same being. They are three distinct things, and Origen uses a Greek word to describe these that has become somewhat famous. The three persons of the Trinity are three hypostases. I'm sure your next question will be, hey Ben, that's a cool sounding word. What is a hypostasis then? You know how sometimes when you ask your teacher a question that is really tricky or controversial and the teacher replies with, well, that's a good question. Well, let me just say, dear listener, that is a very good question. Technically, the definition for a hypostasis is pretty basic. It indicates an underlying reality or substance, something that has its own stable reality that won't pass away. So for example, I am a hypostasis, and so are you, presumably. But my reflection in a mirror is not a hypostasis because when I move away, the reflection will disappear. The Greek word hypostasis literally means standing under. Hypo is under and stasis is standing or enduring or remaining or something like that. So a hypostasis, at its absolute most basic, really just means something that's going to stick around. That's about all there is to it. So the problem is not that we don't know what the word means, it's the word is so generic that it's not particularly helpful. The Father, Son, and Spirit are three things. What kind of things? Eh. Even a genius like Origen doesn't dare to really touch that question. All he says is that they'll stick around. But he does also talk a little bit about how these three hypostases are related to each other. And he emphasizes that they are always, always, always found together. There's a certain correlative aspect to their names. After all, you can't be a father without a son and vice versa. 
The three persons of the Trinity are bound together in such a way that although they are three things, they cannot possibly coexist without each other. Which means that this is as good a time as any to remind you that the Road to Nicaea is brought to you by technical Greek vocabulary. In today's fast-paced modern world, it's never been more important to sound intelligent and self-assured. But what about when you are peering into the mysteries of God, which makes fools of the wisest of the world? What about when you don't have a wiser word than thing? How about saying the same word, but in a different language that most people don't know? You'll be amazed at the results. Upstage your pastor in adult formation. Shoehorn your newfound vocabulary into conversations with friends. Field bad jokes from your partner about how it's all Greek to them. Stop getting invited to dinner parties. Technical Greek vocabulary. Making scholarship easier and relationships harder since 500 BC. Now, just because Origen thinks that the Trinity is three interrelated divine things does not mean Origen thinks all three persons are equal. This will get him into trouble later in history, but Origen maintains that there is a pretty big subordination of the Son and the Spirit to the Father. After all, the Father may not be a father without a son, but the Father could still technically exist without a son, whereas the Son receives everything that he has from the Father. We'll get into this more in future episodes, but for Origen, it is crucially important that the Father be seen as the absolute source of everything that is, both in the Trinity and in the world, and therefore kind of has to stand apart from everything else, even the Son and the Spirit. In fact, at one point, Origen suggests that the Father exceeds Christ just as much as Christ and the Holy Spirit exceed the rest of us. That's also from his commentary on John. Yet, at the same time, Origen wants to say that the Son and Spirit really are well and truly divine, just like the Father, but in a different and perhaps lesser way. It's not totally clear that Origen can have his cake and eat it too. But before we judge him too harshly, we should remember that he talks this way because, well, the Bible talks this way. Remember how in John chapter 1 it says that the Word was with God and the Word was God, which sounds an awful lot like equality. But then in John chapter 17 verse 3, Jesus calls the Father the one true God, thereby differentiating himself for the Father, and that sure sounds a lot like subordination. Origen, for all his brilliance, probably couldn't quite crack that theological nut. Yet his thoughts on the matter provided the tools for Nicaea and later thinkers to try their own hands at the problem. With Origen's Trinitarian theology behind us, it's time to turn to the final source of 4th century Trinitarian thought. Tertullian of Carthage, the greatest rhetorician and theologian of the Latin West. If Origen was the shining genius of the 3rd century, Tertullian was the grumpy old man with a point. He was an uncompromising debater, well-trained in the art of both rational argument and rhetorical takedown. And if you want to see both on display, there's really no substitute for reading Tertullian firsthand. Let me share with you an excerpt from the introduction of Against Marcion, one of Tertullian's most famous works. As you might guess, it's an extended refutation of the theology of Marcion of Sinope, the very same Marcion whose heresies bothered so many early Christians. 
Here is how Tertullian expresses his uh, frustration with Marcion, and I quote, The Euxine Sea, as it is called, is self-contradictory in its nature and deceptive in its name. The fiercest nations inhabit it, if indeed it can be called habitation when life is passed in wagons. They have no fixed abode, their life has no germ of civilization, they indulge their libidinous desires without restraint, and for the most part naked. The dead bodies of their parents they cut up with their sheep and devour at their feasts. They who have not died so as to become food for others are thought to have died an accursed death. In their climate, too, there is the same rude nature. The daytime is never clear, the sun never cheerful, the sky is uniformly cloudy, the whole year is wintry, the only wind that blows is the angry north. Waters melt only by fires, their rivers flow not by reason of the ice, their mountains are covered with heaps of snow. All things are torpid, all stiff with cold. Nothing has the glow of life. Nothing, however, in Pontus is so barbarous and sad as the fact that Marcion was born there, fouler than any Scythian, more roving than the wagon life of the Sarmatian, more inhuman than the Massagete, more audacious than an Amazon, darker than the cloud, colder than a Pontus winter, more brittle than its ice, more deceitful than the Ister, more craggy than Caucasus. End quote. You heard that right. Tertullian spends the whole first chapter of his book telling you how much Marcion's homeland sucks. And the only thing that sucks worse than Marcion's homeland is Marcion himself. Tertullian would have done well on Twitter. Now, before you write off Tertullian entirely as just a complete and total jerkface, he is doing something of a bit here. In late antiquity, writers and speakers were rewarded for really biting humor. It's what readers and crowds liked, and it's how teachers taught educated young men to speak and write. So Tertullian is not just an angry old man yelling at clouds. He's a trained rhetorician who knows how to entertain his audience as he makes his point. That being said, Tertullian's style of argument was harsh even compared to his contemporaries, so it's probably not entirely wrong to view him as the grumpy old man of early Christianity. But he is a grumpy old man with a point, and it's that point that we are here to talk about. Tertullian made a very important defense of the Trinity against modalism in a book called Against Praxius. Now, he doesn't begin this book with an epic takedown of Praxius' hometown, he just begins by pointing out how the devil is a liar who wants to ruin everything and is using Praxius to do this. A bit of a rhetorical downgrade from against Marcion, if you ask me, although I'm sure Praxius would not have appreciated this mercy. Now, there are a couple of important things about this book that we need to notice. The first is that Tertullian is the first one to use the word trinity, or the Latin term he uses is trinitas, to describe the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians have, of course, been talking about those three persons since the Bible itself, but they lacked a snappy label to speak of all three at once. Tertullian provided it. He also provided a rather snappy and probably incorrect summary of the debates regarding the Trinity. He sets up two overriding principles to consider, which he calls monarchy and economy. 
Monarchy in Greek is a compound of mon plus arche, and it literally means the one rule or one principle. Economy refers not to supply and demand or inflation, but rather to the ordering of a plan. In this case, God's plan of salvation that is carried out by Father, Son, and Spirit. So in a way, the monarchy represents the oneness of God, while the economy represents the threeness of God. That part is fairly solid. The part where Tertullian probably goes off the rails is when he states that Latin-speaking Christians are accused of emphasizing the threeness of God while forgetting about the oneness of God, and Greek-speaking Christians do the reverse. Interestingly, the exact opposite summary will be made in later centuries, that the West focuses on the oneness of God while the East emphasizes the threeness. Now the second thing that Tertullian does is make an important psychological analogy to explain how Christians can worship three persons while only proclaiming one God. In other words, he is attempting to explain how you hold the monarchy and the economy together. The argument goes basically like this. When you think to yourself, you create a sort of dialogue between two parts of yourself. You might say, I've got to go to the grocery store tomorrow, and in so doing, you sort of create a second self who speaks to you. Or maybe you are trying to decide between having cake or ice cream for dessert, and you feel as though there are two voices inside you, each arguing with the other as to which is the better treat. Now, of course, there's only one of you in reality, but Tertullian's point is that our mind has a way of splitting itself up into two or three voices in the process of thinking. Now, Tertullian says, God essentially does the same thing. God's word is simply God's inner process of reasoning and thinking, a sort of divine conversation partner that is always there. The only difference with our process is that everything that comes from God has substance and existence. So whereas we create fictitious copies of ourself in our minds to reason with, God generates an actual copy of God's self to reason with. And this second person is the Word, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. He then makes a similar argument that each word has a spirit or meaning behind it, and in God this becomes the Holy Spirit. The idea that the Son is the mind of the Father given expression and existence is going to be an important one in our story going forward. But for now, the main thing you need to know is that Tertullian is trying to find a way between two bad alternatives. Either confessing three gods, which is doing a polytheism, and therefore very bad, or saying that father and son are just different names for the same thing, which is the modalistic theology of Praxius. Tertullian is not the first person to try to thread this needle. One generation before, the theologian Theophilus of Antioch had tried to do the same thing by describing God as having his own logos innate in his own bowels, generating him together with his own wisdom, vomiting him forth before everything else. And with that kind of uh, talent for scatological metaphor, you probably see why nobody talks about Theophilus of Antioch anymore. Tertullian's genius was finding a very clever way to describe the Son and Spirit as distinct from the Father without making them alien to him. The Son is nothing more or less than the mind of the Father and is just as close and united to the Father as we are to our own minds. The Spirit is as close to the Son and the Father as our intentions are to our own words. It's a powerful analogy, and later Christians will spill a lot of ink parsing out exactly what it entailed.
There's one other contribution Tertullian makes to Trinitarian theology that we need to discuss, and that is the way he thinks about substance. Tertullian affirms that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all of the same substance, a phrase which will be very important in the decades ahead. Now, interestingly, Origen will occasionally use the language of substance to describe the Trinity, but he doesn't particularly like it because it can imply that God is a material body. Tertullian, on the other hand, uses substance language precisely because he thinks God is a material substance. You see, Tertullian ascribed to an ancient philosophy known as Stoicism. You may be familiar with Stoicism from reading Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, or from those business self-help books that seem to rediscover Stoicism every three years or so. But for our story, what's important is that the Stoics think that everything that is, is material. Not just bodies and earth and water, but minds and souls and even God. Stoics thought that God was a sort of infinitely fine and diffuse substance, so fine and diffuse that it extended over the whole universe but couldn't be detected because it was so subtle. So while Tertullian calls the word the mind of the Father, he also sometimes describes God as a primordial cosmic ooze that eventually splits itself into three persons, kind of like pulling apart a ball of Play-Doh and shaping it into three figures. This ooey-gooey account of God's triune being will not be nearly as popular with his successors as his image of the word as the mind of God. Origen, as we said, resisted using language of substance because he thought it implied that God was material, something that Origen, as a good Platonist, not a good Stoic, was very keen to avoid. And all those who claimed Origen's legacy at Nicaea, which was pretty much everybody, had to deal with this problem with the language of substance. In fact, resistance to the language of substance will prove to be one of the main barriers to the Nicene Creed's acceptance. Interestingly enough, both Origen and Tertullian would eventually come to be on the books as heretics. As we discussed in the supplemental episode, Origen was mostly condemned by the reputation of his followers centuries after the fact, and mostly on the basis of his tendency to emphasize the subordination of the word to the Father. Tertullian, on the other hand, fell in with a group called the Montanists, an apocalyptic sect who practiced an extremely strict ethics of self-denial and came to see their founder, a guy named Montanus, as the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. Grumpy old men with a point have been susceptible to overly harsh religion at all times in history, and Tertullian was no exception. But regardless of their eventual fates, both Tertullian and Origen made important contributions to the Trinitarian thought of the 4th century. And we will turn to the story of the 4th century theologians soon, but not quite yet. For as you may remember, the Roman Empire has been in a bit of a pickle in the 3rd century, with emperors staging coups and getting murdered left and right. It's rather hard to have a church council when the emperor can decide to persecute you on a whim, or when you have to divert yourself on the road to avoid the clashing armies of two imperial contenders. So first, we're going to meet the man who put a stop to the latter form of trouble, but intensified the former. Next time, we meet the Emperor Diocletian, administrator par excellence, stunningly brutal emperor, aspirational cabbage farmer, and perhaps the most infamous persecutor of Christians ever known. He will be our next stop 
or perhaps a roadblock on the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.